Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome again, everyone, to New Books in Women's History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jeanette Cockroft, and I'm the host of this channel. Today, we're going to be talking with Jason Spreitz and Kendra Bowen about the new book they've edited entitled Institutional Sexual Abuse in the Hashtag MeToo Era. Welcome, Jason and Kendra, to the show. I'm really excited to have you here. Uh, Thanks for having us on, Jeanette. We're we're very excited to talk about the book with you and your listeners. Absolutely. Why don't we start by each of you telling us a little bit about yourselves? All right, Jason, you want to go? Sure. Uh, So uh, my name is Jason Spreitz. I am an associate professor of criminal justice at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. I got my PhD from Indiana University of Pennsylvania in 2011, uh, and I've been up here at UWEC uh, for the past 11 years or so. Uh, And uh, IUP is where I met Kendra. We were in the same doctoral cohort together. Uh, So that's just a little bit of a background. Um, I can get into much more uh, in a little bit, but I I think uh, Kendra can introduce herself as well. Yeah. Thanks, Jason. Yes. Hi. Um, So my name is Kendra Bowen. I am an associate professor at Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, also known as TCU. And like Jason said, we went, we spent four years of our life at IUP, um, receiving our PhD in criminology, and that's where we got to know each other and started collaborating with research. Excellent. Thanks so much. So why don't you give the listeners uh, a little bit of background as to how you came to put this book together? All right. Well, I can I can start, and it's kind of a circuitous route how we got here. I'll, I'll try to give uh, an abridged version of it. <laughs> Um, but it it really, it it has its roots in July, 2013, uh, the, the archdiocese that I kind of grew up in, um, as a grade schooler and high schooler, the archdiocese of Milwaukee, uh, released or unsealed these, these documents about priests who had been accused of sexually abusing children. And because that's you know where I went to school, I it was merely just kind of curiosity to look at the files and and see what was going on. Uh, and one of the files in particular, well, they all stand out in their in their own um, special way. But one really stood out in terms of research, and it was a a priest who had been accused. I think he'd been charged. He actually had been charged. And he said about the charge, well, it's only a fourth degree misdemeanor. It's really not that big of a deal. 
Yikes. <laughs> yeah, and I thought, okay, well, there's techniques and neutralization right there. Let's file that away in case a research opportunity comes up at some point. And then a research opportunity came up. And, and since that time, Kendra and I have, well, we started looking at the, the clergy sexual abuse and techniques of neutralization was kind of the first thing we looked at. Uh, we've looked at um, sexual grooming typologies yeah. and practices that, that priests within uh, a number of dioceses have used. And then we've also looked at kind of the cover-up of the abuse. And, and that's really where the institutional aspect right. comes into play. And so we were, you know, publishing all these things and not just on Milwaukee, but various dioceses throughout Minnesota, Illinois, so on and so forth. And Joe Schaefer, who is the series editor for the Perspectives on Crime and Justice series, which uh, our book is a part of, he, he kept asking me, he's like, you should really submit um, a proposal for pre-sexual abuse or whatever. And I, I think we had talked, Kendra and I, and there wasn't, I don't think, enough there for a, a book to stand on its own, but we kind of had that idea in the back of our head as well. And it, it, it really wasn't until about 2017 where I did another chapter for uh, an edited volume by Dan Lee and Carly Hilinski-Rosick on contemporary issues in victimology. Uh, and my, my chapter was on institutional sexual abuse, where I got to, within those 20 pages, explore a little bit more than just the priest and clergy sexual abuse. And I thought, okay, uh, this this is kind of where uh, a book could go. Uh, yeah. and, and I talked with about it with Kendra, uh, and Kendra was on board. Uh, we submitted a proposal to SIU Press, and um, that's that's kind of how we got to where we are, or where yeah, where we were with with putting the book together. That's interesting. I think a lot of times, particularly in this political climate. People don't think academics do any research of any real world value. Um, yeah. Not the case, huh? Yeah. And that's what I, I love about this book. When Jason, um, when, when Jason asked me to collaborate with him and I was so grateful that he did. One of the things I love about this book is that it kind of bridges that gap between academics and practitioners um, and that it, it, it's a practitioner friendly book um, and it's a very important topic, um, you know, one that we are passionate about. And so I love that it gives kind of case studies in each chapter, that it gives case studies about things and gives real world implications of kind of, you know, of policy implications on what can be done uh, about this. It's important. It's important work. Um, so let's start with this question. What's the origin of the hashtag Me Too? Yeah, so uh, that's covered in the book. Uh, and uh, we, we thought it was important to cover it because it kind of it had been co-opted a bit. Um, and so, you know, as as you and, and your readers are, are likely to know, it was Tarana Burke uh, who who coined the Me Too movement uh, when 
But then in it was 2017, I believe, um, when Alyssa Milano tweeted uh, what she tweeted uh, about uh, sexual abuse, especially in Hollywood, and and that kind of reinvigorated uh, this idea of Me Too. Uh, but <clears throat> we thought and we knew that we had to give credit in the book, and everyone should just give credit regardless uh, of where uh, it, it started and its genesis. And so within the editing process, that was something that we had to like cut down from a number of chapters because a lot of our contributing authors also wanted to give credit where credit was due with, with the start of, of Me Too. Absolutely. Um how is sexual abuse defined in this context, in this volume? Related to the institutional setting? Yes. Yeah, I think the big thing between, and Jason, please speak up um, if I'm wrong, the big thing with just sexual abuse between institutional sexual abuse is when the abuser uses their power of a, uh, as a tool to harm somebody else in a larger, a larger setting. A lot of times it's person level crimes that people think about, especially with sexual abuse, like a, a father with a, you know, a father with a daughter or a stepfather with a, with a, um, uh, with a, you know, a, a child. And part of what just sexual abuse in general and institutional is just that there's widespread cover-up. People knew about it. I was just reading an article the other day out of Colorado and a teacher had um, had sexually abused multi- over 30 boys. And when they asked, and when they asked the superintendent, and, and actually it's, it's an article from last year, but it was about a, a case that happened decades ago. And when they asked the superintendent about why, why they did not notify police you know, he he pretty much said, why is it our responsibility to file a complaint? And I think that's one. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that's what sticks out to me as a difference with institutional sexual abuse versus sexual abuse, that you have people who know they might not have been the perpetrator who, who committed the horrendous crimes, but they knew about it and covered it up or just chose not to do anything about it. Yeah, so so power is is important. Uh, so these these institutions, they're they're entrenched. They've built up power, and and they want to maintain that power. Uh, I think money is also uh, a huge driver of this. Uh, just to speak specifically on you know things that we found when examining uh, the church uh, within these files, you'd have. People who are very high up within a diocese say, we can't let this get out. We have a capital campaign ongoing where we're trying to raise funds. So so that plays into it as well. Um, even, uh, you know, in the book, we have a, a great chapter on uh, sexual abuse in sports and, and that institution. And, and two of the main case studies there are, you know, two of the main cases that we've heard about within the last decade or so. And that's the, the abuse at Penn State University. Uh, and that was one of those things, you know, it, it's, it's an elite athletic institution and an elite head coach um, who, you know, word is that he, I mean, the, the claims are that he knew about it. 
Um, and then uh, with USA Gymnastics with Larry Nasser and and what was going on there. Again, a very powerful powerful person and a powerful organization. Um, so yeah, power has a lot to do with it. Prestige, uh, maintaining a, a, a positive image of the institution. Yeah. Almost all of the authors, to some degree, are talking about the impact of hierarchy and money, as as you've mentioned. What about the role of patriarchy and masculinity? That's something that was highlighted as well. So why don't you talk about that a little bit? I can start here, um, and Kendry can jump in. I think... uh, and I'm thinking about um, the chapters specifically on higher ed. And, and again, this is throughout the book, but I do know that our authors, three different authors, two different chapters on sexual abuse in higher ed, they talk about uh, the patriarchy quite a bit and, and how um, young women on college campuses uh, how and again, this is beyond college campuses are kind of told that people don't believe them and and encouraged almost not to speak out and uh, again that that goes into power, um, kind of like you had mentioned. I don't know, Kendra, do you have? Yeah, I mean, I think we all. Uh, I- I think we know I'm teaching a, a, a crime victims class right now this summer. And so every morning we talk about with all the topics we talk about, a, like a reoccurring theme is that kind of patriarchal um, hierarchy and that it's just, you know, research continues to show when there is a, a hierarchy and there's a lot of males in an institution that that gives an increased chance that a cover-up or uh, a cover-up is going to take place. Um, so I think all the victimology research, you know, consistently shows with institutions when you have that patriarchy, when you have male dominance, then there's likely to be, or a larger group of males at the top, that there's more likely to be a, a, a potential for a cover-up to take place. And we continually see that in in the, the articles that have been coming out in the news recently with the sports um, the sports situations that um, uh, that Jason alluded to all ago. What's what's driving that on college campuses? Because my sense of it is that there are more young women now on campuses. So what's going on with this? Uh, I mean, I, it would be pure speculation uh, to really answer that question. But you're right. Uh, when you look at enrollment numbers at uh, in universities across the country, it's 55, 60 plus percent women. Um, but then I do think if you look at the percentages of people um, – as, as professors, the percentages of people uh, who are in administrative roles, I think that's where you, you have an imbalance back the other way uh, with, with more men okay. in charge. And So when we're talking about uh, sexual abuse on campus, what specific kinds of situations are we talking about? You've mentioned the issue with Larry Nasser at USA Gymnastics. What other context on campus do you see this being an issue? Well, I think 
just in general reporting, uh, I know that <clears throat> campuses have to, to report their crime stats through the Cleary Act. Um, but I also, and I, again, this is, this is speculation on my part. It might be even me kind of, um, uh, I don't even know. Um, but uh, the idea that, you know, th- there's fewer and fewer high school graduates, colleges are um, trying to position themselves to maintain enrollment figures. Uh, so, you know, maybe it doesn't look as good if, if, if you're showing a number of rapes and sexual assaults on campus. So uh, maybe actively trying to deter folks from reporting these types of these types of crimes um or even i mean we we see it all the time where where victims aren't believed and how that can discourage someone from coming forward where you know their credibility will be run through it uh they'll be questioned no one will believe them um and and so that's obviously an issue everywhere and yeah and i like uh, you know we're talking about the campus campus climate and campus uh college cases but what i like about the book is is there's that reoccurring theme no matter you're talking about college campus is what you're talking about with uh religious institutions we have a chapter on political um institutions um you know foster care system as an institution um custodial jails and prisons um and you get and then in sports and then in the media and so you see these reoccurring themes that kind of what you're talking about in the college setting is very similar to the rest of these and that's what i like about this book is it pulls together i think a lot of people when they hear about this stuff like originally they had heard about Boy Scouts of America and then they had heard about the Catholic Church and then you know and, and then of course the college campus uh, what's going on on college campuses and what, and so people kind of think about them in their silos. And what I like about this book and the chapters is it really brings together that it's institutions that the, that, you know, it, college campuses aren't unique to this. The, the, the religious institutions aren't unique to this, that it's happening in several organizations and has been for several decades. We've just been drawing light to it recently. Right. On college campuses, what's the context in which this kind of abuse happens? Is this, large, this is largely about campus social life or something else? Yeah, I mean, I think um, the the campus social life, uh, social life, when you're talking about, you know, Penn State's in this, people, um, it, you, you and I, I believe, are, are in Texas, and so oh. Baylor, Baylor, you know, the the Baylor scandal is, is, you know, one of the recent ones that happened in Texas with college athletes on college campus. But what ended up coming out was more than just athletes. It was other students who had been victimizing people. And in those call and those victims, those college student victims were going to deans and going through the the appropriate channels to report. And people were there and were like, oh, we can't help you. Or, yeah, we've heard this before, but we really can't do much about it. Um, but yeah, so I think the I think it's just the 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 college life in general, and then there's stuff about sororities, fraternities, and the social activities involved. Yeah. Um, to you know, to to go off what you were saying. Absolutely, um, Jason, you look like you want to say something. No, no, no. I don't. <laughs> um, 
since you've already brought it up, let's talk about the issues of sex abuse within religious institutions, both Catholic and Protestant, um, because that's slightly different. That's not about social life, right? Correct. Yeah. Um, so uh, what we've seen uh, within the Catholic Church is it's not social, uh, but social, I guess, mechanisms are used uh, to to perpetuate the abuse. And it, it, it's, it's a power thing, um, just as institutions are trying to maintain power, the individuals are trying to maintain power over their victims. Um, and, and so what we saw with, with priests in the Catholic Church was they were using their positions as priests to identify, um, I guess, who, the, who their targets would be. And it would, it, was it a, a student who was serving as an altar boy? Was it someone who participated in um, some kind of youth organization with the church? Uh, was it a, a, a young kid who maybe didn't have the most stable of home life? Uh, and, and so what we saw there was, was priests kind of using their position that 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 had been bestowed upon them as kind of this this uh, representative of the church uh, to not only groom the child but also groom the family a bit and ingratiate themselves with the family and and you know be able to go on trips to cabins um, to movies to get ice cream all these different things uh, with the children who eventually became their victims. Uh, and I think to, to, I guess, speak about religions that aren't the Catholic Church, uh, similar mechanisms at play uh, with, with, be it uh, youth pastors with youth groups. Um, I think that's how the Church Two movement started when... Um, when, when some victims uh, spoke out about, you know, the, the, the youth group leader, um, you know, grooming them and then abusing them. Um, when you, I think there's a, an anecdote uh, or a case study in our chapter in the book um, about a preacher who was kind of leading uh, one of these evangelical churches and, had used his position of power uh, to coerce, groom, and abuse uh, individuals. I think his secretary uh, is the example that stands out more specifically. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, kind of how it differs a little bit in and, that regard. Yeah, and building off, off of what Jason's saying, too, what really fascinates me and the Catholic Church, I mean, it's, it's happened in other, other churches, we're seeing it, play out right now with the Southern Baptist Convention as it, uh, uh, they're going through something similar right now. And, but, but so building off of what Jason was saying, it really got me when we were doing all the research, just the blatant cover-ups. Like we talk about that priests uh, use the techniques of neutralization to continue their offenses and, and stuff. But when we were looking through all the documentation too, um, with it, just the, the diet, the archdiocese and the different people who weren't even directly involved with that priest, but the higher ups 
you know, trying to put a lid on it to cover up what was going on really got me because I was just like, okay, this is not like your best friend over here. This is just a, a another priest. And instead of you doing the right thing and what I like, what I find fascinating about religious, um, religious uh, groups, as you know, the, especially the Catholic church, Jason and I grew up in a Catholic setting. And so, you know, knowing that priests are supposed to kind of be that person in between the average citizen and, and, and God in the congregation, and then to have them covering it up, you know, just because, you know, this person that they don't even, they might know of them, they might not be in the same congregation, but these, these high officials, you know, just being like, being like, oh, let's just tell the families that we're dealing with it. No need to, no need to contact law enforcement. We're dealing with it. And meanwhile, we're just going to transfer that person to another, to another diocese for them to do something horrible to, to another victim. And there was multiple transfers. Yeah, there's multiple transfers on average before they do anything to the priest. And then when they do stuff to the priest, it wasn't uncommon for them to send them off for treatment for, for, you know, alcohol or substance abuse problems or for mental health problems versus addressing the, the actual, you know, um, sexual abuse allegations. Right. Um, is there a particular um, sort of victim are, are there certain characteristics that define uh, someone most likely to become a victim of, of this kind of religious abuse? Um, what, what we saw with, with the Catholic Church was it was more likely to be young boys, um, I believe, I mean, the highest likelihood uh, was, I think, b- between the ages of 11 and 14 for the young boys. Um, but yeah, that's that's just that was within the, the Catholic Church data. And and there's there's others like um, Karen Terry and, and her research team out of John Jay that did tons of research that actually laid the groundwork for what we were able to do. Um, but to the best of my recollection, those are the numbers. Yeah. And, and with Jason, um, one of the things that we like to talk about is and research is the grooming techniques used to. And obviously for that to be able to continue, um, you know, you have to have that. You have to have grooming, short term, long term grooming to to be able to continue that abuse, because obviously, you know, if somebody stands up, if, if, you know, you start wrestling, tickling with somebody and they kind of stand up, a kid says, Hey, this isn't right. Like, you know, my parents taught me this isn't right or whatever. Then, then, then that's going to be, that's going to decrease the likelihood that that will continue um, in that regard. And so we, some of our other research has been on the sexual grooming aspect of, you know, the long-term effects of how, how do these people continue continually abuse kids and other kids. Would you expand on that notion of grooming? That that word is flying around a lot in contemporary politics. And I think it's important that that we are all clear about what that is. Yeah, so we when we talk about grooming, we're talking about uh, an, an abuser who is purposely engaging in conduct to lower the inhibitions and kind of 
put the antenna down of their potential victim. And uh, there, there's a number of tactics that can be used. Kendra just mentioned one. She talked about kind of physical touch, um, how, you know, uh, I'm, uh, someone's going to tickle you a little bit or they're going to um, maybe do something that might be deemed more normal, like a pat on the back, but a pat on the back and your hand lingers too long. Um, and so that's kind of desensitization to kind of physical, but then it can also be emotional, um, building rapport, um, trying to, uh, and and we kind of call this like a, a false sense of rapport, like you're, you're building this fake relationship uh, for the person, for again, for the for the purposes of someone lowering their inhibitions and trusting you, um, and then you're taking advantage of that trust. Uh, there, there's also grooming, like I had mentioned earlier, of the community, of the family. Uh, w- with the priests, they would um, kind of get in well with the parents you know stop over for dinner uh you know be an ear to listen to if the parents have something going on right so that they're like oh this this is a great person you know this is someone you can can turn to um where then they would feel comfortable calling the parents up and saying hey you know can i take your son to the ymca or an overnight trip uh to this cabin and and the parents wouldn't think wouldn't give it a second thought and and the eventual victim wouldn't give it a second thought, right? They'd think, oh, you know, this is great. This is a priest. This is, you know, someone uh, who I really look up to and adore and they're giving me this attention uh, and then they're, they're, they're abusing that trust. So a number of different tactics. Uh, there's, there's some good research that's just coming out on um, a group of researchers have developed a sexual grooming scale. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, to, to kind of look at all of like how these different techniques are used. So, um, yeah. Ah, that is interesting. Now, are these same techniques applicable in custodial situations, prisons, uh, juvenile facilities? Are these are these same kind of techniques applicable or because of the nature of that institution is the approach somewhat different? And I'll I'll start off and Jason can finish off if he if he wants. But, um, you know, I think when we were talking about the priests and stuff, I think the um, mentoring um, after school activity or after school activities, um, coaches, people like that, um, you know, that's more applicable to, uh, and then so, and then with, with minors, just any, any adult showing preferential treatment to build trust or that unique kind of like making, making that person feel like there's a new, a a uniqueness in that relationship. When you're talking about custodial, I think it's a little bit different. And, and, and Jason, if you want to elaborate, um, too, when you're talking about custodial relationships, in and of itself, and when you're talking about adults, it is simply illegal because those people, people in jails, prisons, in a, in a custodial um, institution, they can't provide consent consent because they're not free to go from that institution. They're not free to make their own choices and decisions. So that is a little bit more unique. Jason, do you want to elaborate? 
No, I, th- I think uh, you kind of nailed it there uh, when talking about the, the legality of it. Um, <clears throat> and there's also just a, it's, it's a power differential. I mean, I think there's a power differential in all these examples. But when you think about custodial institutions, jails, prisons, juvenile detention, uh, there's definitely a, a huge power differential between the person who is um, the employee and the person who is um, being held there. So the techniques don't really have to be quite so nuanced, is what I'm hearing. I mean, they can still be used. There could be grooming used, but I think it's there's some differences as well, just with, with the power dynamics that are in play. Absolutely. Um, let's talk about politics a little bit. And political institutions in general, in terms of abuse, what is that? What does that look like? And what sort of techniques do you see at work here? I mean, just looking at the the chapter in the book, um, it's it's power, right? It, there's People in power, and the examples in the book are predominantly men in power uh, who are behaving poorly, who are breaking the laws by engaging in the conduct that, you know, they're, they're we'll, we'll say allegedly, that they're alleged to have partaken in. Uh, and <clears throat> there's very, f- there's very few repercussions. Um, the... So I don't know, Kendra, do you have more? Yeah, I think Amina does a great job. I think it's chapter three of her book in in talking about that. And and Jason, you know, did a great job explaining it. it, Mainly males, um, you know, are tend to have historically dominated our politics and people in power. And it's very hard for victims um, to, you know, feel comfortable coming forward. And then when they do come forward, um, there's a lot of victim blaming and a lot of questioning that goes on instead of looking to that suspect and, you know, asking them about it. Victims can, you know, tend to, people automatically attend, uh, tend to go to that. Well, you know, you just wanted to see how far you could get with a person of power. Like it was, it was, it, it was good for you. It, it was good for you to be with somebody like that. Um, of course it was consensual and stuff. And so that's what, also with the, with these with the media and with the politics and stuff what i find fascinating is um just the the amount of people instead of questioning the perfect the suspect and people automatically go to questioning the victim's story yeah and i i think you know the the one thing that should be um apparent by now but in in many circles isn't is that the alleged victims of these crimes, they really don't have a lot to gain, right? We see how they're treated um, and and how they are blamed for what has happened to them. And, and we look at it and it's like, well, who would want to go through that, right? Who would purposely stand up and say, you know, this Supreme Court justice or that Supreme Court justice or whomever did this to me, knowing the backlash that is going to ensue? Um, 
I mean, and, and I don't really want to talk too much about this because I wasn't following along that much, but we even saw uh, recently with um, Amber Heard and Johnny Depp and, and just everything that came about because of that. And, and um, I, I, I mean, we, we don't treat victims well. So yeah, that's just the point I was trying to make. Well, it brings to mind the phrase hegemonic masculinity um, that appears in the chapter dealing with sports and sexual abuse. So can you talk a little bit about that notion of hegemonic masculinity? Yeah, I mean, I think, so the media, uh, you know, when you were bringing up, um, I think you're bringing up uh, Dr. Wellman's chapter um, and she brings up Harvey Weinstein as a case study um, and, and stuff. And so, so with that, it's just that, that whole idea of legitimizing a man's dominant position in society and justifying, you know, that power that they have over people. And so not just with that chapter, the other chapters too. I mean, that is a, a, a reoccurring, a reoccurring theme. You see that in the sports uh, in the sports world, because um, it tends to be, you know, a, a male alleged perpetrator um, and stuff. And so I, I do think that we are doing it. We are, we have come a long way since the re- resurgence of the Me Too movement in 2017. I think people are paying more attention to this in society. Um, I do think we have a long ways to go with it. But um but yeah, I, I think that's a reoccurring theme again with the institutions overall, that male dominance um, and, and what that brings when you have one one gender in power over, over others. So what can institutions do about rooting this out or preventing it or at the very least reducing the incidence of it? Right at the end, at the end of the book, you have a pretty extensive discussion around this issue. So, let's talk about that because I thought that was important. Yeah. So, um, I mean, when we can trade off here, Kendra, if you want, um, but I think you know one of the most important things, uh, and I'm going to go back to this, is believing the victim, right? And, and we know that. It's very rare that someone makes up claims like this. Very rare. So believing the victim um, and investigating the allegations that are made uh, is is really the least that can be done. I mean, that's not even a novel statement. You know, it's the least that can be done is good faith investigations about what is happening. Um. So maybe then you can encourage other people in the future that if they are victimized to come forward as well, so they won't be victim blamed and and they won't um, have to go through it like we're seeing victims go through it. Yeah. um, And piggybacking off of that, Jason and I are are both have our PhD in criminology. We teach criminal justice and criminology uh, classes, and that's what our, our research is in besides with sexual abuse. And so one of the things that I try to get across to my students is a lot of people look towards the criminal justice system to, you know, 
to fix problems. And, and don't get me wrong, we can do the criminal justice system, we can do a much better job, um, just like any institution can do a better job than what they're currently doing. But most uh, violent crimes, and when you're talking about uh, sex crimes, that are the most underreported violent crime. And so most of these crimes aren't even getting reported to police, for police and the criminal justice system to do anything about it. And so a lot of times I, I talk to my students just about what we're talking about. What can we do as a larger society, um, you know, to to help reduce um, reduce these crimes and, and picking bagging off of what Jason uh, is talking about. The current research shows that, you know, about three to eight percent of people actually don't tell the truth about sex crimes or make up that they were a victim of sex crime. So what that means is well over 90 percent of people are telling the truth. Um, and we as a society tend to try to poke holes in, in, in the, you know, when anybody comes forward, they try to poke holes in it or they say, like, what did you expect to happen? You know, um, with whatever this this situation was, going back to what people were wearing and things like that, and it's a I think it's it's more pertinent for the larger society to step back and and be like because I think it's just easier for us to victim blame or to question the victim to think of you know step back and think more more I think it's harder for us to step back and think okay why do people think they have a right to do these things to other people. I think that's a lot harder for people. So they naturally go to the victim blaming, but teaching people as a society to, to, to not victim blame, um, to, you know, all of these institutions or most of them have implemented tons of training, um, including uh, higher ed. There's a lot of training at TCU. We go through multiple trainings every year. Uh, related to this and we have to complete them and stuff. And so I, I think that's a good start, but we do still have a, a long way to go. And I think it's kind of up to society to just see how we can better treat victims, obviously for the long-term effects of, uh, uh, of making sure they are resilient and, and come through this um, as best as possible, but also to encourage people to report and that way it also will affect the criminal justice system and more people being likely to stand up. And so that's what I loved about the Me Too movement um, is just giving giving victims a voice and to for people in society to realize, you know, we tend to stick, stigmatize our victim blame. But most people, unless they live in a bubble, they know somebody who's been affected by sexual violence. And so in the big scheme of things, making people more aware of hey, there's a lot of people who, who this has affected, including people you know and love. So let's try to try to figure out, uh, you know, a societal way of combating this. I think a lot of people have a hard time thinking they live within a context of institutions where people they know and people they love have been victimized. Um, if it can happen to someone else, it can happen to you. And that's a very tough thing to have to think about. Um, Jason? Yeah. Uh, and so I, I did want to speak a little more um, and add on to what Kendra said um, and, and kind of, you know, answer your question a little bit more as well, because we do have a number of other policy ideas. And, and one of the things Kendra had mentioned in her response was these trainings that institutions are making uh, their employees do. Um, and, and we talk about that in the book as well. Uh, these trainings, I think, need to be more user-friendly. 
Um, they're, they're very just kind of straightforward. Uh, they're not, you know, I don't know how exciting you can make them, but it's just something that people feel they have to do. And they're reminded, Hey, you have to do this by this date. Uh, and so I think many people don't take them as seriously as they probably should and don't really think about the things that they're learning within these trainings. Um, but the trainings themselves are a good idea, right? Passing this information along to people is a good idea. Uh, we talk about mandatory reporting, which, I mean, there, there, there's some arguments about mandatory reporting and, and is it a good idea or does it, you know, does it stop the flow of information, right? If, if any of us are sitting there and, and we get this sense that our student in a meeting in our office is about to tell us something and we have to stop them and say, just so you know, I'm a mandatory reporter, then are they going to feel like they want to tell us, do they want to take it further or do they just want to like, let somebody know? Um, so yeah. So, so I guess, you know, kind of looking at those laws and, and seeing how better to implement policy in that way. Um, so, yeah. And then we do talk about institutional change and institutional transparency, which I think based on our conversation here, where we're talking about money and, and or not money, but power, but keep and keeping things in place, that's, that's even more difficult to do to get institutions to change because, you know, we, we can sit around and talk about it and why it's a good idea and who it'll help. Um, but we're not the ones in power. You know, we're not the ones that are most affected by this. So, so yeah. Well, that brings up an, an interesting question, right? One of the suggestions you offer is the diversification of the workforce, right? The more different sorts of people you have, um, the more likely it is that somebody somewhere is going to hear these voices. But what happens when these people are all part of the hierarchy and they become part of the power structure? Um, does yeah, that-, that, that was that was kind of why I said what I said was. And, and I guess I'll, I'll explain a little bit more because, yeah, you, people don't start off in power, right? They work their way up to power. And then it's you can question, all right, well, now that they're in power, do they want to mess up or mess around with the status quo? Or do they just want to keep things the same? Um, so that's why I think, it, you know, we make the suggestion, but I do think it'll be very difficult long term. Okay. Um Let's talk a little bit about the screening of potential employees. Um, what what would that look like? How could you screen out potential abusers, assuming that they don't all have police records and scarlet A's? Um, how would that work? What would that look like? Yeah, I think what... Um I think with what a lot of the historical research showed is like minimal background checks were actually being done, if at all. And um, and the whole idea is just being like doing a thorough, thorough background check. Um, there have been some 
this happens everywhere, but specifically in a in a, a city that where I um, around wherever I live, um, there had been just recently some situations where where some teachers got caught with um, with with, with got caught with child pornography on their work computers and also with inappropriate relationships with minors. And what happened was the, the teachers just resigned and nothing was really filed with the police department. And, um, you know, cause the school district was just thankful to get rid of the people. And so, um, you know, closing loopholes like that in that, Hey, you need to report these things like, you know, you don't feel like it's your responsibility, but it is. you're in charge, you're an administrator of a school, you're in charge of an organization. It is your responsibility um, to, to report. But when you don't do things like that, then that allows, you know, people to go on to other institutions, to other organizations and, and continue that. And so I think with the, I think with just educating more people with trainings and the bystander education, you see something, say something um, type things and just making it, making it a lot harder, like closing those loopholes will, I think, go a long way in, in helping that. That makes sense, right? Otherwise, there isn't any trail for a background check to find. Um I think I've probably taken enough of your time. So I want to thank you both very much for a really interesting discussion about a very important topic. Um, before I let you go, why don't you each of you tell us what's coming up for you? What are you working on next? Oh, okay. So I'll, I'll go. Um and so right now, uh, currently, I am working on a, a lot of my research focuses on uh, on sex crime in general. And so um, I am uh, myself and a couple of colleagues from TCU in, in my department have teamed up with the district attorney's office and we uh, a local district attorney. And we have been looking at the sexual assault cases and we have teamed up with, with them too. And, and what I love about this is that this district attorney came to us and was like, I think we can be doing more for victims of sexual violence. Can you, you know, can you look at this and help us? And besides wanting to look at other, other aspects of it. And so uh, because of our latest research, they, um, they created a specialized unit for uh, the prosecution uh, of sexual assaults, which is pretty cool. And so we also have done, we're now looking at that. We're looking at kind of pre that that specialty unit and post um, since um, the changes before and after because we have that data and we're looking at some other other crimes at that DA's office. I'm also doing some research with uh, the Children's Advocacy Centers of Texas, um, looking at law enforcement resources and, and collaborations when working child abuse cases here in the state of Texas. Um, so I have that and some um, some stuff going with the local police department about um, crime redu- violent crime reduction strategies because a particular what we're seeing across with COVID that um, some of your big cities are experiencing spikes in violent crime. And so um, yeah. uh, some colleagues and I are working on working with a, a large police department around here on, on trying to come up with some policies and some some improvements to to decrease violence in our area. Oh, that sounds exciting. Thank you. Yeah. And yeah, that sounds great. Wow. Um, 
so for me, uh, this this summer we I just teamed up with two of our students, and this was their idea. Um, we are surveying uh, local law enforcement officers from about a half dozen different um, agencies within our region uh, about you know stress, mental health, and well-being. Uh, and so we just launched that survey within the last week. And then we're asking, you know, if they want to participate in follow-up interviews, we're scheduling those. Uh, and, and this is, you know, completely student-led. I'm kind of the, the mentor overseeing it, but it's, it's, a, it's a new area for me. Um, but then even thinking about... Um, more of this, uh, the sexual abuse-based research. Um, one of the reasons I knew a lot about that sexual grooming scale is I think I was a blind reviewer on a number of the manuscripts. And, and so that piqued my interest as well as I'm reviewing these manuscripts. I'm like, okay, so we've got, or they've developed this sexual grooming scale. How can I apply that to the these files that we have from priests from dioceses throughout the country um so that's something that i need to really sit down and and get a grasp on how to design that research because that's where um i think the next iteration of that research will go yeah that is also very exciting anything that has students undergraduate students yeah, yeah. So oh. UW Eau Claire is is really well known for its um, its undergraduate research program. That's fabulous. Those are fabulous opportunities. Well, as I say, I've taken enough of your time. So thank you both very much. I've enjoyed it and very informative and very timely. So thank you both. Thank you for the opportunity. We appreciate it. Of course. Yes. Thank you. And thank you to your listeners as well. Absolutely. I think the listeners are going to find this to be very informative. So thank you. 